I'm JP Tuesday. And I'm Kiki Cannon. As lifelong Disney fans, the work of countless talented Disney creatives have shaped our lives. Now, as the Disney catalog expands, we're taking a journey through film and television to discover if that spark that shaped us as children lives on in adulthood. Does your favorite Disney media still cast that same spell? Join us as we find out. We are Rewatching the Magic. Hi, Kiki. Hi, Tuesday. Oh, this is one I've wanted to talk about for a while. Fern Gully, The Last Rainforest. Another one of those movies that us elder millennials grew up with as youngins. Which is... Uh, Fern Gully was a Fox film, which means Disney owns this one now. So this is technically a Disney movie. And it was the movie Disney did not want made. Boy, Disney tried to do everything they could to keep this movie from being made originally. This was a story in Hollywood at the time. Um, And even before the Fox buyout, Disney execs would not talk about the fact that they tried to absolutely destroy this movie before it ever got to theaters this was i mean do you even remember the story behind this because it was kind of if you if you followed hollywood at the time this was big news but i don't know how much of that kid you were no i mean i i would find out later that the writer and director of the movie were huge environmentalists and they wanted to make an environmentalist movie and this is what we got. Well, that's a different story. And it had nothing to do with Disney trying to end this movie. Mm-hmm. Disney's beef was, as we talked about before, Robin Williams was going to be in Aladdin. And Disney wanted to, against Robin Williams' direct instructions, sell Aladdin on the back of we got Robin Williams in this movie. The only problem is, is that Robin Williams had already agreed to be in a little movie called Fern Gully, The Last Rainforest. And this movie was coming out first. And this movie was being made first, was planning to hit theaters first. Um, And this movie, as you just said, this was a movie with a message. Everybody connected with this movie all of the actors in the movie all of the people working on the movie except for probably just some of the workaday animators or whatever but all of the upper end creatives were big believers in the message of the movie so this movie was made for a lot less than intended you know for a film of this sort Because all of the actors, who were all pretty big names, worked for scale. That means minimum wage for an actor. Okay? Um, Scale is the minimum wage a union actor is allowed to accept. All right? So, that means that all of these star power people are basically making actor day job McDonald rate. 
Okay. <laughs> that's, that's what it means. They believed in the project so much. They were like, literally pay me the minimum you're allowed and we will do it. So nobody was doing this movie to make money. Everybody was doing this movie because they wanted the environmental message to get out. And that's why Robin Williams and everybody else was doing this movie. Now, Robin Williams chose to do Aladdin, which he did not do for scale. Because he wanted to do, you know, like a kid's movie and, you know, fun things. But he did not want his name to be used to sell that movie. Uh, By his own admission, he didn't want to get typecast as a cartoon guy. Yeah. And so he did the movies for two very different reasons. But as we talked about in our Aladdin movie. Oh, so long uh, ago. (laughs) uh, uh, Yeah, back in our first year of doing this podcast. It was one of our first episodes that we did. um, Robin Williams got very mad at the Disney Corporation at the time. Because they went back on their agreement and used his name to promote the thing. If you'll remember at the time. Fern Gully really did not use Robin Williams' name above anybody else to promote this movie. He was just in the list of big name actors that were in this movie. So, the Fox Corporation kept their word to Robin Williams. The Disney Corporation did not. But Disney, knowing that they were going to go back on their word to Robin Williams, tried to keep him. They tried to get him to pull out of Fern Gully. That was their first move. Robin Williams, tell Fox to remove you. Tell them they cannot use your audio. Originally, Robin Williams was only supposed to have a few lines in this movie. His character of Batty was supposed to appear for just like a minute or two and then be gone. He was supposed to go in to record for like, you know, a a single day and have like eight minutes of audio, I think. He ended up giving them like four hours of improv. I mean, that's Robin Williams. I mean, there are hours and hours of Robin Williams material from Aladdin that will likely never see the light of day that I'm so sad we're never going to get. And who knows how much got cut out from from Ferngully, his, you know, his impressions, his references. I wonder how much of that they had to clear because he makes so many jokes, like he makes a few Star Trek jokes and other things that I wonder if Fox is like, can we legally make this reference in this yeah, movie? Yeah, there's, there's a bunch of Star Wars references and stuff, which at the time was owned by Fox, so they didn't need to clear that. <laughs> um, and now it's all owned by Disney, so including this movie. The thing is, is that when Robin Williams would not break his agreement with Fox, then Disney went even weirder because the movie was still being animated. They record the audio first, then they animate. And so Disney would find out where the animators for Fern Gully were setting up shop 
And then Disney would go in and buy the building before the animators could get there and set up shop. So Fox would buy, or the the uh, production company, which was at the time a small production company, and it was going to be distributed by Fox. So this small production company that was just trying to make a movie about environmentalist issues on a shoestring budget for Hollywood would buy, like, an old warehouse in Hollywood somewhere. And then the Walt Disney Corporation would come in and bid, like, 5000 or $10,000 higher and buy them out. And so then they would go find, like, an old coffee shop or something and bid on that. And then somehow the Disney Corporation would find out and bid just a little bit higher. And it was always just out of their price range. And they chased them all over Hollywood. And it became big news because all of a sudden Disney is just going around buying all this like really bizarre property. And people are like, why is Disney suddenly interested in like random disused coffee shops and like auto parts stores and like all this like really weird property? And it was because this animation studio was just trying to find any place for their animators to set up to finish this movie and Disney was not letting them. When the mouse wants something, they will find a way to get it. Yeah, and I mean, eventually they they found a, a way and um, finally got got the film produced, but it was a massive expenditure for Disney to try to get this film not made, which is bizarre. And it was just because they had Robin Williams' voice in the movie and that they were going to put it out just before Aladdin. And this is technically the the, the animation first. the animation feature film debut of Robin Williams. Yeah. It it is so strange and so petty. I mean, we've we've talked stories of how petty Disney can be. And it's but, kind yeah, of we're, why we appreciate whenever people are petty back to Disney. It, yeah, because as a corporation, they've done things like this to so many smaller guys. So it's like when we talked about the Warren Beatty thing, we're like, well, we can appreciate the little guy relatively being petty back it's you know uh yeah so but you know eventually the the little guy won on this one in the short term and made the film but as disney so often does in the long term disney kind of won because now disney owns the film outright i mean it, it it probably it probably wouldn't have sounded good in like Disney wants to make sure environmentalist movie doesn't get made. But the thing is, is that's what people eventually figured out when people started realizing, wait, there's Disney is doing all these strange real estate deals. They eventually put one and one together and figured out the two that 
they were specifically buying properties against this other studio. And that's kind of how people figured it out. But um, yeah, it, it, it wasn't a good look for Disney at the time, and it still isn't a good look for Disney in retrospect. Um, but it was, it was, I mean, it was specifically, uh, I, it, it was specifically Jeffrey Katzenberg. This would have been his, his tenure at Disney. Um, so it's specifically his bad look, but you know, Disney as a corporation didn't stop him. So, <laughs> I mean, I, I could see Eisner saying, "Yeah, uh, I fully, I'm fully on with you, Jeff. Uh, we got to make sure this movie doesn't come out because you know, this movie comes out, it's going to hurt our bottom line with Aladdin." Yeah, but the thing is, is it didn't because if you look at the final numbers for what Ferngully did at the time and what Aladdin did at the time, I mean, you know. Yeah, and even now, Disney really doesn't acknowledge this movie. This movie was recently released on Blu-ray through Shout Factory. Yeah, and you're not going to find this movie on Disney Plus. I mean, we we didn't, you uh, know. It is currently on Amazon Prime Video and something called Freebie, which is apparently Amazon's free with ads uh, streaming service. But uh, yeah, any release of Ferngully that comes out currently in the year 2023 is all through Shout Factory. And I assume that this was some sort of deal made prior to the buyout. That Shout could that Shout Factory could take some of these old animated movies that that Fox had and re-release them, you know, the cult classic. I would consider Fern Gully a cult classic. It wasn't it, it didn't exactly make the big bucks at the theater. Yeah. And, and that's Shout Factory's thing. I mean, they're the official distributors of Mystery Science Theater. So there Yeah, been... Shout Factory is a, is an amazing company as far as I'm concerned and they have the rights to a lot of my favorite stuff, a lot of my favorite films and TV shows and they were really good at keeping like some strange comedy music alive for a while and you know really good gang over there. Yeah. So, so they, they they are, as of now, having the distribution rights to Ferngully, The Last Rainforest. I'm pretty sure Disney owns the movie outright, and Shout Factory has to pay some sort of licensing fee to them. But if you are buying a released copy of Ferngully, The Last Rainforest in the current era, you're likely buying the Shout Factory release. Yeah. So... Um... This this film survives in the millennial consciousness primarily for one thing and one thing only, and that is for the villain song. Tim Curry, the amazing, the legendary Tim Curry as our villain Hexus with probably one of the best villain songs in, in this 
millennial animation history. And this is this is kind of the renaissance of Tim Curry's animation run, or at least his voiceover run. Because he would do this. Obviously, he would do Muppet Treasure Island. But he would also do, also for Fox, uh, Peter Pan the Pirates. And also would be the villain in superheroes, Superhuman Samurai Cyber Squad. And for a brief shining moment, he was almost Joker on Batman the Animated Series. Almost, yes, almost. Almost. And some audio has just resurfaced where you can hear just a short clip of what that would have sounded like. It sounded great. I mean, no offense to Mark Hamill, who is and always will be forever the Joker. But that would have also been great. You know, somewhere there is a universe where that happened, and that was also a great and wonderful universe. Also, there is the universe where Tim Curry played the master in the Ace Doctor movie, the Doctor Who movie. Oh, yeah, and that is also a great and wonderful thing because, uh, as we will get to later in the year, Eric Roberts Master is the worst thing ever to have happened anywhere in any universe. Someone hasn't so, listened to the audio dramas. Uh, I stand by my claim. Uh, but yeah, let's talk about this villain song before we really deep dive into this movie. And we have to talk about who wrote the villain song. Because it's a banger of a villain song, and when you first hear it, you're like, oh, this just hits all the right ways, and I don't know why. And then you find out who wrote it, and you're like, oh, I should have known this. This is so obvious. I can hear it now. This song, as well as Robin Williams' big song, The Batty Rap, which we'll get to later, are written for this film by Thomas Dolby. He blinded me with science. She blinded yes, the, me with the science. Guy that wrote She Blinded Me with Science, the great and legendary Thomas Dolby. Yes. And I, I think Thomas Dolby misunderstood what this movie was going to be about. Or, as we had discussed prior to recording, this feels like this was movie was going to have a much different rating. The song is called Toxic Love. Now, if you watch the movie, you get about a minute, a minute and a half of what this song is. If you have the soundtrack, I believe it's about a four-minute song... With a lot of sexual innuendo about pollution. Thomas Dolby, um, cover your children's ears, parents, for the next few moments. Thomas Dolby wrote a song where Tim Curry sings that pollution makes him horny. That line was cut from the film. It's on the soundtrack. Yeah, I mean, the... That line is unmistakable what he's talking about. The rest of them are innuendo. But even in the film, like this was 1992. We were tiny, you know, we were 10, 11 years old when this movie came out. This was unmistakable. 
I want. I have to tell you the story of how I saw this movie the first time. Go for it. Because it is incredible. This was not a subtle film in how it was marketed. This was marketed as, hey, kids, want to see a movie about the environment? I mean, it, it was not like come bring your children to this movie and then we'll talk to them about the environment. Like, no, no, no. All of the marketing for this movie was like, come bring your children to the most important movie they will ever see in their lives. We have to save the environment. I mean, the marketing for this movie might as well just have been Captain Planet being like, bring your kids to this movie. Like, okay, not at all hiding what this film was about. This was at the height of the Save the Rainforest movement. Yeah. Um, so, somehow, <laughs> the science teachers at my school at the time talked the school into bringing all the students in my grade to the theater for a field trip to show them this educational film about the rainforest. And it worked. (laughs) So we had to take a form home to our parents to get it signed that we could go to the theater, which if you've been listening to the podcast long enough, you will know was very touchy for me because I wasn't sure my parents were going to sign it because this was right in the sweet spot of, I had just been allowed to start watching certain films at the theater, and 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 I wasn't sure if my parents were going to allow this film. We've addressed it. You grew up in a very religious household. Yeah, I I grew up, you know, extremely, extremely uh, religious. And this was a movie not only going to be seen in the theater... But this was a secular movie about environmentalism. Ooh. And it had fairies and magic in it. Which were also forbidden topics. I was not allowed to watch Captain Planet because Captain Planet talked about environmentalism. And it also portrayed the Earth as a magical nature spirit named Gaia. I only wanted to watch Captain Planet because magical nature spirit named Gaia was voiced by Whoopi Goldberg, who was on Star Trek. (laughs) That was my entire interest in Captain Planet. I did not care about the politics of Captain Planet. I just wanted to hear Whoopi Goldberg's voice because she was kind of on Star Trek. (laughs) Um, But I couldn't watch it because environmentalism, magic, and Earth spirit Gaia. Uh, Anyway. I was very scared bringing home that form to my parents and being like, hi, they want to take us to a theater and it's a movie. I think it's a musical. Um, Musicals are nice, right? (laughs) Can we please? uh, It has magic and fairies and environmentalism. I'm sorry. It's supposed to be educational. It's educational. (laughs) But my parents did sign the form and I was able to go see the movie and we saw the movie. And that was how I saw Fern Gully. <laughs> and there you are, 11-year-old Kiki, watching an animated... 10-year-old ten- Kiki. This was before my birthday. 10-year-old <laughs> Kiki, 
watching this movie and there's an animated Tim Curry simulating orgasm noises. Yeah, that was the, I was like, ooh, it's a good thing my parents did not watch this movie before signing the form because this makes me feel some kind of way and I don't understand that. (laughs) (laughs) But the thing is, is that the rest of the kids in the class were watching that and I remember like, especially the boys were like, I ain't sure we're supposed to be watching this. Did they bring us to the right movie? <laughs> that girl fairy, that that girl fairy's barely wearing anything. So is that boy fairy. Yeah, it was kind of a it was kind of a weird movie that that uh, it, a lot of the kids I remember at the time, because you know this was a deeply rural, deeply conservative uh, area of the South I grew up in. I do remember there being a lot of talk and a lot of whispers among the teachers in the back that had come along to chaperone that were like, should we make them stop the movie? (laughs) And when it got to Toxic Love, there was a lot of chatter among the teachers that were like, no, really, should we make them stop the projector? (laughs) Like, that scene brought so much, like, awkwardness among the teachers of like did we accidentally like who screened this movie before we brought an entire group of school children like what would have this been in like fifth grade I guess um like we just brought a whole group of fifth graders like 10 and 11 year olds to see this movie I hope someone screened this movie all the way through because if this gets any weirder we are all getting fired (laughs) yeah and it was it was absolutely toxic love that that started like at first it was like well she is wearing very little clothes and so is the christian slater fairy but at least the grandma fairy's wearing a lot of clothes like that's 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 a pretty decent amount of clothes for grandma fairy like you know it was like you could already tell they were like well i mean some of them their parents let them wear two-piece to the pool so I don't know and like I guess you could just say they're all going swimming later uh, it's like, there is a scene where they go swimming <laughs> yeah I mean there is but we didn't know that yet you know like you could hear the chatter from the teachers in the background like I, I, okay I guess we can get away with the clothing but alright and then it got to toxic love and they just absolutely we're like, oh, please let this be the worst thing in the movie. Please let this be the worst thing in the movie. Because, <laughs> like, 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 Thomas Dolby, I mean, it, it's like he found out Tim Curry was singing. It's like, oh, I'm going to write a song for Dr. Frankenfurter. Yeah. And then the thing is, is that the conceit of the movie is that the villain is the soul of destruction or something you know a, and a creature at the of the time a destruction spirit they call him in the movie. yeah the, the spirit of destruction or whatever but i had remembered it because i haven't seen this movie since i was a kid like i saw it a couple more times when i was a kid but i haven't seen it as an adult so i had forgotten that the original bit for the villain was that he was a volcano spirit 
that he was born in kind of the the volcano there, Mount Warning. Mm-hmm. The idea in my brain as a kid was he's just the spirit of pollution. Yeah, that that, that was my only the thing that that had that was his whole thing was pollution. But in the in the opening narration, they they show him coming out of the volcano. Then they show and they specifically describe him as a spirit of destruction, and that the fairies are the spirits of creation. Yeah. So the idea was he was originally just a nature spirit, and now he's been corrupted corrupted by humanity. But. They said he needed poison to live. And that would have made sense because the same kind of poisonous gases that we humans emit, the greenhouse gases that were being emitted from the heavy machinery are also produced by volcanoes. They are just produced in lesser amounts that unless there is a massive volcanic explosion, they are released in such amounts that the natural weather cycles tend to disperse them and you know they're able to balance and it's only when there is a huge volcanic eruption that it destabilizes in a particular area and so it made sense that he was living in the volcano and feeding on those particular gases then and the when humans she came. says <laughs> i trapped him in a tree where he couldn't get to the poisons there's no poisons here because she trapped him in a tree very far away from the volcano and the volcanic vents. In the so he can't get to the gases. Yeah. And then the humans came in. And then the humans came in, and when he sees the exhaust, he immediately latches onto that. And all and the problem is in the toxic love song, he begins to put his mouth on the exhaust vents. <laughs> And sucks them. <laughs> yeah. Which, given the kind of bedroom nature of the song <laughs> and the visual of this creature performing this act on this very long, slender, <laughs> cylindrical object, <laughs> this is a very suggestive. <laughs> they they try to cover that up by having Tim Curry say, "Oh, it's mother's milk." So it's like, "Oh, he's not sucking. He's well, sucking on a mother's breast, not anything." Well, else. no, they actually compare it to a cigarette and they have him say a line about that's a that's a good clean smoke or something, I think is the line. Mhm. What what's the a first class smoke? I, I wrote it down. It's a first class smoke. 
which and kinda, then he exhales the smoke as as if it's from a cigarette, which is also not a joke they would put in a children's movie today. Which makes me again, it adds to my thought that this was probably supposed to be a PG movie, but they had to cut some stuff around to because this is still the early nineties and PG rated animated movies did not tend to do well. Ask Disney when we uh, when we go back. We we did uh we did the Black Cauldron and that was Disney's first PG animated movie and it bombed because parents didn't want to take their kids to see it. So this movie had to be rated G, so they had to cut around some stuff. I mean, we don't even see the main characters kiss at all in the movie. Yeah, they just kind of hug really long. <laughs> and look at each other in the eyes. Yeah, they they stare at each other really creepily for a very long time. Um, so also, when we first see the body of of Hexus, it's very skeletal until it becomes the smoke very the the very smoke uh, Tim Curry inspired being. And it's also an oil and sludge. As well. Yeah. Uh, which is interesting. That he keeps changing. And, and the form he takes shifts. And there is that skeletal form that is really creepy. I mean, even as an adult, you look at that and you're like, oh, that is a terrifying image for a kid if movie, you just yeah. pause that and and freeze frame that image that's a really gruesome shot so yeah i do wonder if they had originally thought that this would be a, a little you know darker of a film mm-hmm. um in fact one of the criticisms of this film was that it's not darker. Which but, is strange. Mm-hmm. Because people are like, well, you're trying to do an environmentalist message to kids. But the thing is, is that the problem with this film, and I do kind of agree, is that It's a little bit different between some of the films we've talked about that were made for millennials when we were young by boomers and some of the films that are being made by millennials now for younger generations. And if you look at them, you can see the difference. And, you know, we we just talked about Strange World which has a very environmentalist message. And even though it does have a happy ending, it is not the happy ending that this movie has. This movie's happy ending is like... The forestry grew, yay! Well, it's it's like we beat one machine and we regrew a forest, yay! But the problem is not that, like, they just, they show one guy, like, 
you need to like forests. Now go back and tell people about forests being neat. And the problem is, by the time we were kids, our generation, you know, and we're like the ancient millennials by this point. You know, we were the start of the millennial generation. By the time we were kids, by the time Fern Gully came out, everyone on the planet, whether they wanted to admit it or not, everyone on the planet knew about environmentalism and had known for a while. Okay? Our parents' generation already already knew. They were the hippies. Trying yeah, to do, I mean, to... you know, it, the 70s already had people you know, going, talking about the need for electric cars. I mean, shout out to Ed Bagley Jr. Everybody owes him an apology. Not kidding. Everybody listening to this, go out and personally apologize to Ed Bagley Jr. Because you know you grew up listening to what a weirdo kook he was with his little electric golf cart or whatever. You know you did. And you know you drive a Prius right now. <laughs> so go apologize to Ed Bailey Jr. I'm not kidding. All right? Man was on the forefront of that. So, and I remember when, like, the Prius first came out and I heard about it. Like, and this was, like, what, 15 years ago or whatever that the Prius first came out. And I heard about it and I was like, wow, that's a real upgrade in electric car technology. Just the way that works, that hybrid idea. I want one. And I said that to the family of the person I was dating at the time. Like I was just over at their family dinner or whatever. And I had just heard about it on the news that morning that they were coming out with that car. And I said, oh, that sounds neat. And their family said to me, like their father said to me, oh, what, you going to be Ed Begley Jr. with your little stupid electric golf cart just driving around, beep, beep. And all they were like, it's never going to last. Nobody's going to be driving one of those things. You'll never find a mechanic that will know how to, like, do one. Yeah, go out and buy one of that and see how everybody's laughing at you. How many people you know you drive a Prius now? I know a yeah? few. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on. Like, half the people I know drive some kind of hybrid that's based on that technology. So, what I'm saying is, like, by the time we were kids watching movies like Fern Gully, people already knew whether or not they wanted to admit it. And there are still people today who don't admit it. Everybody already knew this stuff. So the point of this movie, which just kind of ends with, like, Go out and tell people that trees are important. We already had the term tree hugger by this point. Mm -hmm. And we had it for a reason. So as much as I kind of like this movie and I'm glad movies like it exists and like, yes, please tell kids to, to go out and hug trees and trees are important and don't do industrial scale logging of rainforests because that's awful. I kind of like the tone of movies like Strange World better, where it's like, yeah, okay, we saved the thing, but we're still not in a great place at the end of that movie. Mm -hmm. 
Like, it's not like they end that movie and, like, everything's bright and brilliant and green again. They had to change their entire way of living in the end of Strange World. And even during the credits, they're still cleaning up mess. Yeah, they're still cleaning up the mess. They're having to change their entire way of powering their society. They're ha- Like, you still see them doing the work at the end of the movie. Like, at the end of this movie, Zach just kind of runs off, and he's like, I'm going to tell the world about environmentalism, everything's saved, bye! And you know, two weeks from then, Ferngully was a wasteland. Also, I would throw in that it kind of diminishes the message in a little bit, because in some ways, it's saying that the fault of pollution and deforestation is a supernatural occurrence. I don't think it does because the villain, as cool as the villain is as a concept, does the villain actually do anything in this movie? He's more of the guy in the chair because he's the one that's telling the loggers, hey, go to Ferngully and chop it all down. He doesn't yeah, I actually mean, get, he's he, directing the loggers toward this one area, but the humans are already just, you know, chopping down a bunch of trees. He doesn't actually get proactive until Zack turns off uh, the machine. Then he says, what happened to the power? Where's my smoke? Where's my smoke? All right, now I'm going to have to get involved and do this myself. And then he's yeah, back but, and then he's back to the skeletal form we saw earlier. Yeah. But the villain doesn't actually do anything except like right at the end he tries to like smack a couple of fairies around and Zack he just kind of benefits from some corporation somewhere deciding to do massive deforestation for reasons. And we don't really know what those reasons are. They're just there to be loggers and chop down the forest. And it doesn't even look like they're harvesting the trees for lumber because they're just putting trees into a shredder. So are they clearing the land to build... Like that's buildings. That's the implication that Batty is giving. You know, soon as soon as the humans get here, there goes the there goes the trees. Here come the tall buildings. I mean, and and Hexus says something in his song, at least in the long version of the song, about like shopping centers and parking lots and stuff like that. But we never know exactly why they're leveling the forest. They're just leveling the forest. Yeah, the the villain, the actual spirit of destruction, isn't the instigator. He's set free accidentally and is fine just kind of feeding on the pollution that was already being caused by humans. And the only time he takes any action is when somebody makes a move to stop what the humans were doing. And and yeah, but you see him bust out of bust out of the levelator and in that skeletal form again and actually 
start attacking. Yeah, and honestly, I think the entire point of the film, or at least what should have been the point of the film, is summed up in a couple of lyrics in Toxic Love. Because he says, and and this was left in the movie, because greedy human beings will always lend a hand with the destruction of this worthless jungle land, and what a beautiful machine they have provided to slice a path of doom with my foul breath to guide it. And I think that should have been what the movie should have focused on, which is that we never actually see the real villains in the movie which is that hexus is not causing this destruction he's benefiting from the destruction but he's really just you know a guy who accidentally gets set free and gets to you know oh hey you know extra food for me but some ceos we never see some corporation we never see made a decision to level this forest for reasons. And we see three humans who are complicit in that action, and you can and should debate their complicity and what they should do about it. Zach, when he actually sees what's going on, he even says it, you know, the humans are doing this and I help them. Yeah, and he he finally walks away. So he makes a change in his life. He decides not to be part of that system anymore, at least not directly, you know. We don't know the choice the two guys in the cab eventually make with their lives. We don't know if they go back to working for the corporation or not. I think they're just traumatized because a giant smoke demon just pounced out of their their sh- their their machine there. Yeah, and maybe they're they'll just get another job, or maybe they like Zach will also tell the story. We we don't know. But the thing is, is that like I said. Probably realistically, and I know there's a sequel, but nobody saw the sequel, so it doesn't matter. Realistically, probably two weeks later, that forest, including Ferngully, is gone. You know, they destroyed one machine, and you know that somebody's going to come looking for that machine. Nobody's going to believe the three guys. They're going to find that machine broken they're gonna be like oh environmental terrorists or whatever they were fairies yeah they were fairies all right yeah and then they're gonna send some security guys out there with the next machine and they're gonna finish the job because that's what happens in the real world because that corporation i.e the villain is still there and we're still having this argument today, and you've mentioned it. This is, has been going back since the 60s and 70s. We're still having this argument, is pollution, is global warming, is all of this stuff due to human activity? 
I'm going to tell you that argument has been going on longer than that. It's been going on back to the 1800s when they realized that moths were changing color to blend in better with the smoke from factories. And it's implied that this is taking place in the modern day of 1992 when this movie was released. But we don't know when the old days were. Was that the 80s? Was that the 70s? The 60s? We know we have a grandma fairy, but we don't know how old this grandma fairy is. Well, she's talking about an eruption of Mount Warning. And that is an actual place. It's an actual place in Australia. And just so you know, here's a kangaroo. Yeah, um... Weirdly, when I was a kid, despite the presence of a kangaroo, I did not realize this was supposed to be in Australia because every single person in this movie is American. Yep. Including the three workers that are tearing down the forest. Except the demon with the British accent. Yeah, except the demon with the British accent, but all villains in all movies are British, so that didn't strike me as weird. You know? Like, it's just like, oh, there's a villain in a movie. Oh, he's got a British accent. Like, whatever. (laughs) That's normal. Um, How many villains have Tim Tim Curry played in his career? uh, Every every single every single character Tim Curry has ever played has been a villain, I think. (laughs) At this point, it's more shocking to put in a movie with Tim Curry in it and him be the good guy. Um, But Yeah, so the thing is, is that it could have just been the uh, Magi, the grandmother fairy that we see at the beginning of the movie, is talking about literally any indigenous tribe in Australia, and that they left after a climate event or some other event after a explosion, after an eruption from Mount Warning. And when they never came back, she assumed they were extinct. And this is doubly tragic because that indigenous group that the fairies knew may have been extinct. A different way. Yeah. I mean, that might have been because, you know, that was after... Colonization! Hiccup started the, the colonization of... Yeah, so, um, I mean, it. the reason we call it Mount Warning was because that was the name that Cook gave it. It's interesting that the fairies call it Mount Warning because that's the colonial name. That's yeah. not the indigenous name of that mountain. So, who knows if the fairies knew colonial humans or indigenous humans 
of Australia? Like that's the that's the other interesting question if you're if you're going to look at it that way. They call the mountain Mount Warning, so it suggests that maybe the humans they lived in peace with were after colonization, but that seems unlikely. Who knows? Yeah, I, I don't know. It's 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 kind of weird, but the fact, yeah, the fact that the fairies call the humans their friends implies it probably was the indigenous people. I mean, that seems more likely because you know, from what we know about early colonial habits of any place that has been colonized, uh, it's pretty uh, likely that the forest would have already been cut down. But, yeah. Yeah. So, um... The, let's, the, let's, let's, let's talk about the fairy society for a little bit, because we really haven't. Mm -hmm. It does seem that they're... They, uh, they don't grow very often because there's not many of them there they don't seem to be a very prolific community mm. very small not even a few hundred of them and they all seem to live in the one tree yeah, when when Maggie calls them all together to like, oh, save the forest from the, you know, from Hexus or whatever, they, we don't really see that many of them. And the implication that it's been so long that the fairies forgot how to use magic. Really, we've only seen two fairies that can use magic. Maggie and she's teaching Krista how to use magic. But all of the other fairies have forgotten how to use magic. Yeah, Christian Slater Fairy does not seem to know. And, and the other the other fairies just seem to kind of want to race around on beetles. Two of them voiced by Chief and Chong. Yeah, and this was their big reunion. That was the other big story at the time. Chief and Chong had broken up as a duo. But and had not, yeah, they had not done a project together in several years, and it looked like they had gone into retirement or whatever. But both of them agreed to do this movie because they both agreed with the environmental message, like I said before, and they wanted to do it. And they only came into the studio for a couple of hours. Yeah, their characters are not in the movie for that long, and they don't say a lot. Yeah, the they're looking for, and that's about it. Yeah, and they they showed up. They worked for a couple of hours. They apparently ate lunch, and then they left. And they were like, "Oh yeah, it was really fun while we were there, but we're probably not going to do anything together again, at least not in the near future." And they didn't for a while. I think the next thing they did together was that one South Park episode. Yeah, I mean, it was, they just had a, a period where they weren't that keen on working together, and it seems that's over now. They seem to have a better relationship at the moment, but, you know. 
It's never explained why Krista, when she flies, she glows blue, and the other fairies glow green. I think it's just because she's the special one that's got the magic touch from Magi or something. She's the only only fairy that can do magic? Yeah, she's the special chosen one or whatever. I don't know. It's also kind of bizarre because their their main character is it just me or is she not that interesting Krista yes voiced by Samantha Manthus yeah I, I think part of it is that there's nothing like she does one thing and that is put the seed in Hexus's mouth to make the tree grow around him. Other than that, it's she's just seemingly along for the ride while everybody else is doing things. Like for the like under traditional animation movie rules, like all of the fun stuff happens with Zack. And then for most of the movie, Krista is just the love interest until the end, where she actually saves the day. Yeah. She screws up a spell and that's it. Like, I get it. And she probably was the awakening for several young people in the 90s. But as a character, there's not much to do. She's very flash. She's very one-dimensional. Samantha Mantis, not the best voice actor, at least at this point. Yeah, I do have a... a, I am curious to... to wonder if she was mostly in this film because she was dating Christian Slater at the time. Maybe. And I think maybe this movie might have been more his thing than hers. The only time she ever actually shows some emotion is when she's screwing around with Pips, played by Christian Slater. And that's Yeah, their scenes they, together seem to have more energy to them. And they were and I assume that they were recorded together. Yeah, I mean it it does seem likely. The interesting thing is that Zach, who is the main male character, the human that gets, you know, she accidentally shrinks to fairy size to save his life, um, is possibly the most interesting addition to the cast because he is best known for being the child star of Mac and Me. The Truly awful uh, E.T. E. Re- ripoff movie <laughs> that Where's we have Paul Rudd on the show before. Him? Where's Paul <laughs> Rudd when you need him? <laughs> yeah, we have mentioned that on the show before because it is the movie that Paul Rudd keeps uh, making jokes about with Conan O'Brien. Um, and it is also kind of a cult classic and was recently featured on uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000. But, uh, yeah, it's just, it's such a goofy movie, and 
that is his biggest like live action role and this is probably his biggest not live action role (laughs) um but yeah he he was a he was also in um steel magnolias as a but he wasn't like the star of that he was he was one of the kids um in that film uh he retired from acting when he got older um he didn't want to continue acting as an adult um so he he just did it as a as a kid and then he moved on with his life uh and seems happy doing other things but uh this is one of his few roles he did as a i i guess he was an adult when he did this or at least a older teenager but yeah he he retired uh about 10 years after he made this movie mm. he he is he is uh shockingly better as a voice actor in this film i think than samantha mathis who is still a working actor um as of now um he, he could have and, and that's nothing against samantha mathis as an actor it just i i kind of feel when i listen to this movie like her heart wasn't in it possibly i mean not every screen actor can be a voice actor we've seen that in pretty much every animated film now since they have to have every celebrity ever in them that screen acting does not translate well to voice acting this was not only one of her first acting roles i think um she had done like a few television roles before this but this was one of her first film roles just in general and it was also her first voice acting role just mm. ever I, I i couldn't find one in before this that she'd done so i think this was just literally her first time in the voice booth and she just didn't know what to do with it um which fair enough because that's an entirely different set of skills uh but it just i i just feel like you know this this wasn't it for her most of the rest of the cast does pretty well this was either not their first time doing it or like with robin williams he's just robin williams you know it just i mean robin williams has done animation before but that was the mork and mindy animated series yes there was a mork and mindy animated series and Robin Williams reprised Mork for that. But I think with Robin Williams, not that he wasn't acting, but I think that Robin Williams in this style was basically just the same. Like, you could have put him in a, just a room alone and not told him you were recording and he would have probably just you know muttered like that to himself i've seen robin williams do stand up <laughs> the man is a cartoon yeah um so uh he he was probably just playing to the recording studio people at that point you know it just 
I'm I'm not sure he was he was that aware of the the microphone. I think he was just trying to make the people in the booth laugh. And I do like how that plays into some of the story, especially when we get to the the final run here, where where you know lots of just Robin Williams ad libbing, and then Zach goes wrong channel, wrong channel. <laughs> Yeah, that's the that's the other thing that the movie kind of got dinged for about being too lighthearted is that not only does the movie have an environmentalist message, but it has an animal rights message, which is that Batty is an escapee from an animal testing lab. Yeah. And his backstory is, if you look past all the comedic riffing that robin williams does it is truly tragic and horrific the batty rap also written by thomas dolby we only get about a minute of it in the movie but the full song the more you go into that song the longer that song goes the more quote batty it gets and it kind of gets more depressing because you see you hear everything that batty went through in that's in that lab you know Animals don't feel pain. They just get used to it. Bring me another animal. Bring me another. How how the scientists are just discarding animal after animal after every test. And seemingly it's cosmetics that they that they uh, worked on him with. But he still has wires in his head. Well, it seems like they may have used him in several different experiments. Mm. Uh, if you really get into all the the lyrics because he's talked about he says I've been brain fried electrified infected and injected so that could have been vaccine testing mm-hmm. um vivisectified fed pesticides you know um Red and green wires stuck them right through me. The graduate students, please move closer. Scalpel more nitrous oxide. The eye makeup when inserted seems to have some effect. I I mean, it just... There's there's lots of different things he, he talks about. And it seems to just be a grab bag of things that we have and sometimes still do use animals for research and testing yeah and and it is played for laughs as though sometimes those two wires on the side of his head touch and he gets a completely different personality yeah it's a thing that is in some ways it's truly horrific and you can discuss the ethics of it, and you should constantly. I mean, whichever way you come down on it and whatever decisions you make about what you think is ethical, you should at least be having the discussion. But I think that whatever ethical decisions people make they should at least be fully informed that those ethical decisions are being made. You know, mm-hmm. I think that 
people should know where their food comes from. I think people should know how their clothing is made. I think people should know how medicines are made and developed in some cases, you know? Not necessarily so that you can be like, oh my god, boycott everything, but just so that you are aware. Just so that you understand the impact you have on the world around you. And so that if you're not comfortable with that impact, you can find a way to make it better where you can. And sometimes you can't always. Sometimes there is a way to say that you need to say, all right, this is a, a matter of survival, you know. But there are almost always ways that we can make things better safer, more humane, more in balance with the world around us, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And I do think that it's important that we know the impact so that we can try to be as ethical and sustainable and in balance with our ecosystem as we can be. Mm. There's never going to be a way for humans to have zero impact. Just like there's never going to be a way for a cow to have zero impact. I mean, everything that lives impacts things around it. Mm. It's just the way things work. But we also have the extra gift or curse of sentience and being aware of our impact. So we also have the, you know, power responsibility problem here, Spider-Man, to understand and be conscious of, you know, keeping that impact as least destructive as possible. Mm. So I think that that's the better thing to put forward you know Mm -hmm. is not to just go out and immediately say oh my goodness you're an awful person if you don't do x y or z but hey are you aware that you do x y or z are you comfortable with that if you are why if you are not why not if you are not how can we change it you know because I think that's that's a better way to approach people and to approach your own life. Mm. Sadly, I wish we could have started certain conversations earlier because if we had done, like I said, I think honestly when we were watching this movie in 1992, it was already maybe too late for conversations as soft and gentle as this (laughs) you know i mean what we scientists are saying what we got maybe a decade before it's too late and some people say it already is well yeah i mean even now but i mean i think in in 92 we should have been having much harsher conversations and yeah 
we're watching Fern Gully, which is like, hey, have you heard the environment exists? You know? Um, yeah. So, I mean, maybe if we had started getting a little more stringent a little sooner, uh, we we could have had a softer, gentler conversation. I think we're getting to the point where we might need a little harsher, less gentle conversation about things. Yeah. The thing about this movie... Other than what we've talked about. Is that it feels like it doesn't know if it wants to be a musical or not. Because we have three songs that are very much sung by characters in the movie. We've talked about the baddie rap. We've talked about Toxic Love. And we get Tone Loke doing a song called If I'm Going to Eat Somebody. Which was written by Jimmy Buffett. Yeah, Why the this song Bill. was written by Jimmy Buffett, I will never know. Because if there's one thing that should never happen, it's Tone Locke singing a song written by Jimmy Buffett. Jimmy Buffett wrote a rap song about animals eating things. And... Yes, much like the other two songs, we only get a small snippet of that in the film. The long version isn't really better, and it's just the same. I'm always hungry, and I'm going to eat for, like, four minutes. Cutting it down to 30 seconds in the movie is a blessing. But the rest of the songs are just played over scenes, like... We have a cover of Land of a Thousand Dances. Like they find Zach's Walkman and he plays Land of a Thousand Dances and it leads to this big dance number. Um, Our big love song, A Dream Worth Keeping, sung by Sheena Easton and uh, written by Alan Silveresti, who does all the music in here. You know who he is, Back to the Future. Um, The Avengers theme, he wrote that. You know who he is. Yeah, Alan Silvestri wrote the the music, and uh, I'm a, I'm assuming the the lyrics here were were written by Jimmy Webb. Yep, le- le- another legendary songwriter who Mac- wrote uh, MacArthur Park, <laughs> among other <laughs> things. So there's your there's your big love song. Frightening in the dark. <laughs> I guess Someone also the from the Gully is frightening in the, in the dark. Someone left a cake out in the rain. But yeah, so like the big love song. We, we get we get the song Raining Like Magic when you hear about talking to the forest. And uh parents, that song was written by Raffi. <laughs> oh, Raffi. <laughs> like, like, I know who Raffi is. I was just a hair out of the demographic. When Raffi became a thing in the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, I don't think I ever heard a Raffi song until my friends started babysitting their, like, younger siblings or their younger, like, nieces and nephews or something, you know? And you get Baby Beluga. You thought Baby Shark was annoying. Wait till you hear Baby Beluga. But yeah, course, and then and then of course banana phone became a meme. <laughs> a meme, and that's that's when I really found out who he was. Yeah. 
So it's like, but, but yeah, he he did the, he did raining like magic, which I guess is technically the first Raffi song I ever heard. Mm. Yeah, and over the ending credits, we get a song called "Some Are the World," written and performed by Elton John. Yeah, music by Elton John and uh, lyrics by Bruce Roberts. It seems so. Uh, Elton John gets the final word in the movie, and it's it's a good song, but. It's not years before really... he did the Lion King. Yeah, yeah, it's before he did the Lion King, and it's it's a good song. But when you think of Elton John songs, you're gonna remember it's not really one of those. And I I hate to say it, but it's not that Bruce Roberts is like a bad lyricist because he's worked with some of the greats, but. He's not he's not the lyricist you want working with Elton John, really. It plays off the 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 terms that they use in the movie that there are worlds within worlds and worlds that you never see from your perspective. It's fine, but it it's kind of hammered in into this movie. But like I said, half the songs in this movie are sung by characters in it. And the other half are not. So I don't know if this movie wanted to be a musical or not. Like I think like, they wanted it to be a musical, but then the actors that they got weren't capable of it being a full musical. Did we really need a love song sung by Samantha Manthus and Jonathan Ward? You could have done the old Disney trick and just get ringers and get other people to sing the song for them. Well... Yeah, but, I mean, remember how they got the actors. They got the actors who were believing in the project and willing to work for scale, and they're lucky that they got some big names. Mm-hmm. But if you get the big names, you don't always, you know, it's like you would really hit the jackpot if you got a big name who's willing to work for scale and also can sing a big number. Mm. And I think probably all of the songwriters who lent their talents probably did the same thing. I think that's how you get Thomas Dolby and Jimmy Buffett and Elton John all on the same soundtrack on a movie with this budget. Mm. I think that they're just people who really cared about the cause and they wanted to, like, you know, hey, we're doing a movie about environmentalism. We really want to teach kids to save the rainforest. And they went, sure, I'll throw a song at you. I can write this song on a weekend. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it was that kind of thing. And then, hey, how much does it cost to get Land of a Thousand Dances? What's the right fee for that? <laughs> yeah. Um, and. I think that Thomas Dolby believed in the cause so hard he wrote one of the most banger villain songs in movie history. Yep. And I think he went a little too hard. (laughs) But honestly, he went so hard on that villain song, it's the only thing people remember about this movie. Also Tim Curry. 
I mean, it's just, it's just. Well, I mean, yeah, that it, the song also it, it, wouldn't it, have hit so hard without Tim Curry. Yeah. Like I said, if it was anyone else other than Tim Curry singing that song, would it be as remembered? Well, I mean, there's, there's maybe one or two other people. David I mean, Bowie. Let's be honest. If David Bowie sang that song. Well, yeah, that too. But, you know, maybe, maybe Keith David, you need that kind of, that kind of deep deep sexy there but that that song's just a just a banger i've heard a couple of people do a cover of it and it's still kind of it's still kind of hits without <laughs> tim curry like not all of them do the full song though not like all they, of them no like they do the version that's in the film but not the version with the extra lyrics in the soundtrack yeah but yeah i mean that 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 song and the fact that Robin Williams does like Genie as a bat is kind of the only things people remember about this movie other than the fact that like oh yeah wasn't that the preachy movie about the rainforest yeah so bless Thomas Dolby and Tim Curry for that song because I think without that we wouldn't be talking about this movie it wouldn't have had that that cult following it has to this day yeah, everybody just wanted to see the movie where the Tim Curry smoke monster sings the sexiest villain song ever put to film. So let's wrap up this one. Kiki, does Fern Gully the Last Rainforest have the magic? I mean, it's not a bad film. The song has the magic. Whenever Robin Williams' bat character is on screen, you're like, oh, you know. But this one does not really carry over as an adult. And there are honestly a lot better movies to show your kids if you want them to really love environmentalism as a message. I would say show them Strange World. I mean, definitely something like Princess Mononoke or something, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you want them to get into the, like, hey, I should love and protect the Earth, there are way better movies. If you want a banger of a villain song... Actually, if you just want a banger of a soundtrack, buy the soundtrack. It It has very little to do with the movie, other than the two... Thomas Dolby songs. Uh, other than the the two Thomas Dolby songs. Um but you, it's it's actually kind of a killer soundtrack though. I mean, if you ever want to hear a rap song written by Jimmy Buffett. Yeah, if you want the bizarreness that is a rap song written by Jimmy Buffett. Um so yeah, I mean soundtrack magic. <laughs> Movie and watch the scenes with Robin Williams and the couple of scenes with Tim Curry. The rest of the movie is kind of skippable. I have to agree with you in that there are the parts that people remember, and then there's the rest of the movie. And the rest of the movie doesn't exactly hold up for multiple reasons. So yeah, just describe It is kind of funny. It is kind of funny watching the like weirdly animated Christian Slater fairy. He gets maybe 5 minutes of screen time, but the way they animate 
that 90s Christian Slater, like that late 80s, early 90s, like, hey, what's up? I'm Christian Slater. Your girlfriend wants to bang me. Like that. that. I mean, there's kind of like weird smarmy charm that Christian Slater had at that point in time. I mean, the the besides the, the the environmental stuff, the big thing is that Krista and Pips may or may not be in a relationship, and then Zach gets involved and Pips get Pips gets jealous, and then at the end Pips helps Zach turn off the machine. That is the entire hook of those three's relationship. Yeah, it's like a weird love triangle, but it's also G-rated, so you can't have anything interesting out of it. So Christian Slater Fairy just kind of like stands to the side and looks like weirdly smarmy. Dude and it's coming animated. in with my girl. <laughs> yeah, and it's yeah. animated so bizarrely and yet so perfectly, because even without knowing Christian Slater does that voice, you're like, that is a character that needs to be done by Christian Slater. And then you mm. find out, like, oh, yeah, that is him doing the voice. You're like, perfect casting. Or perfect animation of that voice. I don't, you know, I mean, like, of course that's what they did. But I'm like, bravo to the animators, because I have never seen anybody nail that in 2D animation that well. Because it just looks like Christian Slater standing around wearing a bunch of leaves, just being all like, hey, what's up? You know I'm Christian Slater. Like <laughs> Christian Slater was never that buff. Well, no, he was never that buff, but that facial expression is just perfect. It's just nailed it. No notes. Bravo animators. All right, but I will say, you know, go to YouTube, watch the scenes that you remember as a kid, and that's it. I mean, bravo to Shout Factory for putting this movie out that a new generation can watch it. But really, if you're one yeah, of those Yeah, if you're people- really nostalgic, throw Shout Factory some money. Because I, I will always support them. Great company, but... Yeah. Yeah. Just go to YouTube and, and Google the, the two scenes that you know you remember, and that's about it. So, unfortunately, I have to put in no magic for Fern Gully. And it hurts me to do it because it was my idea to do this movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, seriously, soundtrack, banger. Banger soundtrack. Banger soundtrack, yeah. So, let's move on to next week. Kiki, it's time to get back into the TARDIS as we are continuing our 60th anniversary look back at Doctor Who. Now going for the fourth Doctor and the longest serving Doctor in the entire franchise's history, Tom Baker. Let me get my scarf. So Kiki, I only have one question to ask you for next week. Would you like a jelly baby? Uh, no. Yeah, I tried. Tried, folks, I tried. <laughs> We'll talk about Jelly Babies a little bit more next week. (laughs) So come back next week as we talk about The Fourth Doctor and our retrospective of Doctor Who. And we will talk to you all next time. Bye. Bye. Don't let the magic stop here. Join our conversation online on Facebook at Rewatching the Magic. Twitter at Rewatch the Magic. And of course, new episodes every week at rewatchingthemagic.podbean.com Remember, the magic is for everyone. 
It only stops if you let it. If you want to help the fight for human rights in the U.S., the American Civil Liberties Union works to protect constitutional rights for all Americans. Their website is aclu.org. If you need reproductive services in the U.S. or wish to donate to those who do, go to abortionfunds.org for more info. The battle isn't over until the last person surrenders. The fight continues.